Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. It reads, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we direct our attention to the preached word, we ask that by your spirit you would not only inform our minds, but so change our lives. Use your word to search us in the innermost parts of our being. And may we as a result yield to your holy will. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It appears that there was nowhere Jesus and his disciples could go without being trailed by the Pharisees. Whether he was teaching, whether he was healing, whether he was feasting and celebrating, the religious leaders of Israel were there. And we even find them following Jesus and his disciples out into the wheat field of all places. And not because they were drawn to Jesus, but because they despised them. For them, Jesus was an intruder. He had jeopardized their religious influence and power. He had exposed their legalism. He was a threat to their moral high ground. And so they could not see a world where they could coexist with this carpenter. And so by chapter 6, verse 11, they were filled with fury. And they began making plans to get rid of him. Well, here in our passage, Luke provides for us two more accounts of confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. But what the Gospel writer wants us to know is that these two events didn't just occur on one of the days or on one occasion like he does in chapter 5 in some of the events. Rather, he says that they occurred on the Sabbath. Verse 1, on a Sabbath. Verse 6, on another Sabbath. They occurred on that holy day which God had set apart for His people in order to rest. And what we come to find in these two stories is this, that the Pharisees missed the purpose and the meaning of the Sabbath. And in their misunderstanding, misused the Sabbath. Well, we ask ourselves, 
What is so significant about the Sabbath? And does it have any bearing on us today? Well, Jesus, Jesus makes sure to teach us the Sabbath is not just something for which the ancient people of Israel had to keep. As Christians, we tend to think little of the Sabbath, but it is far more significant to our lives than we think. I have two points for us this afternoon. Number one is this, how the Pharisees viewed the Sabbath, and number two, how God wants us to view the Sabbath. And we'll spend most of our time in the second point, then the first. How did the Pharisees view the Sabbath? In Mark's account of this very episode, Jesus tells them this, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees viewed the Sabbath as something for which they themselves were made. Man was made for Sabbath. In other words, made to obey, made to keep, made to abide in and live for. Well, you might be thinking this, is that really theologically bad? Is it wrong that the Pharisees had such a high view of the Sabbath? And the answer is yes, only because they believe the Sabbath to be the goal and the end of their piety and not a means of something much greater. Well, what's the difference? Let me explain. For example, no one would argue that it is right and true to have a high view of marriage. Of marriage. Instituted by God. Given to those He had made in His image as a gift. But marriage was never intended to be the final end of our joy. Or the chief end to our happiness. It was to be a shadow of something far better. A better, more lasting relationship into eternity between God and His people. Marriage ceases to function properly when it becomes the greatest desire and objective for which a person lives. And it becomes, sadly, sadly to say, detrimental. Such was the case in regards to the Sabbath. Sabbath keeping was at the very center, at the very heart of the Pharisees' righteousness. They took the Sabbath and they developed an entire system of rules and regulations in the observance of it. And let me add this, that originally, the people had good intentions in doing so. Going back to the Exodus, the Sabbath was a command that served as a, a, as a distinctive mark and sign for Israel. They had lived in forced servitude and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And so when God brought them out of Egypt, He told them that they were to not work one day out of seven as they had been in slavery for every day of the year, God wanted them to know that He had redeemed them. And so they were commanded not to work, nor to force anyone else to work, but to rest, to have a day of rest, to worship the Lord. This was to set them apart. That when the neighboring nations saw them pausing on the last day of every week to worship God, it was to distinguish them from all the others by giving Israel the Sabbath, God sanctified them. But we know the story of the Israelites. They didn't do a very good job keeping the Sabbath. They didn't do a very good job worshiping the Lord their God. And the ongoing indictment throughout the prophets is this, that Israel went after other gods and didn't keep the Sabbath. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
It's filled with this. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 16. They rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths for their heart went after other idols. So what did God do? He sent the children of Israel into exile for their failure to keep the Sabbath. And so for 70 years, they were, they were banished into the hands of their enemies, Babylon. Now, when they came back out of captivity, the Israelites were, they were a little bit more sensitive not to break that Sabbath command again, which had led to their exile. And so their rabbis, their scribes, and their religious leaders, they began to build laws around God's laws to protect them to protect them from breaking that command. That very command which had led them into exile. And by the time we get to Luke, they had devoted 24 chapters in the Mishnah, a manual for the Jews, on instructions regarding the Sabbath. Describing in meticulous and painful detail what was and what was not permitted on that day. They had turned the Sabbath into a a complex list of restraints. And so you can just see how you can start off with good intentions, but be horribly wrong. And rather than being a day of rest, the Sabbath became the most burdensome, the most oppressive day of the week. For example, traveling more than 3,000 feet from your home on the Sabbath was forbidden. Unless... The day before, you took a piece of rope or a piece of wood and constituted it as a doorway, as your door, and placed it, for example, at the end of your street. Then from that makeshift door, you could walk another 3,000 feet. Or an object tossed in the air with one hand had to be caught with that same hand and not the other, lest it be a violation of the Sabbath. It was not allowed to carry anything weighing heavier than a dried fig, or else it was considered work. A scribe could hold a pen, but carry only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet on the Sabbath. Moving a chair wasn't allowed, since it would make a small rut on the dirt floor with its leg, which was too much like plowing. Tying a knot and untying a knot was prohibited. I mean, it was so ridiculous what the Pharisees required on the Sabbath. And of course, it was all man-made. It was man-inspired and imposed on top of God's holy law. And it crushed the people. It crushed the people with an unbearable burden, with countless legalistic regulations. It sounds almost unbelievable. In their understanding, man was made for the Sabbath. And not because they wanted to worship God. Because they wanted to elevate themselves. They wanted to fuel their self-righteousness. One of the reasons why there are so many extra-biblical rules is because it meant extra-righteousness. The more they painstakingly kept the Sabbath, the more they earned God's favor. Which is why they boasted so much in themselves. Remember the prayer of the Pharisee? I fast how many times a week? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. They believed that to be found justified before God in heaven, that they themselves had to be righteous. 
And beloved, that's not entirely wrong. To be justified in the sight of God, declared fit for heaven, a person needs to be perfectly righteous before God. We know that. But the problem that they had was whose righteousness they believed that they needed. The Pharisees believed it to be their own. A righteousness that was earned by their ritualistic duties. <coughs> their meticulous works. Which is why they're so fixated on adding more rules and adding more rules meant more opportunity and more capacity. More of what was required. More righteousness. More righteousness that at the end of the day that could be produced within them. But, if they would have just remembered the words of David, none is righteous. Not one. The prophet Isaiah, that all my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You see, as Christian believers, we know, we know that we need the righteousness of another. A righteousness that doesn't come from within us, but outside of us, apart from us. Not a righteousness that belongs to us, but a righteousness that is foreign to us. You see, when God declares a person to be just in His sight, it is not because of what He finds in that person, but rather on the basis of what is added to that person. The righteousness of Christ, which God imputes by faith. He declares as righteous those who come to Him in trusting faith. And not gradually, as a person becomes less of a sinner, but instantaneously, or better said, simultaneously, meaning at the same time, and this is what Luther said, a sinner, yet justified. Which is why Jesus said of the tax collector in Luke 18, He said, I tell you, this man, he went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Well, notice here in Luke that the Pharisees, they take issue with Jesus and His disciples on two particular occasions on the Sabbath. One while they're in the wheat fields and the other while in the synagogue. In the first incident, they believe that they have caught the disciples red-handed. And by implication, Jesus as well. Notice verse 2. They said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? In their minds, his disciples were breaking not one, but multiple commandments. Four in total. You see, as Jesus and his disciples walked through the wheat field, uh, his disciples got a little bit hungry. They wanted a snack. And so they picked and they plucked some of the heads of grain. But the accusation was this, that the disciples were guilty of reaping and working on the Sabbath. That was the first violation of reaping. And when they rubbed that plucked grain with their fingers to get to the kernel, they violated two more. The command not to winnow and the command not to thresh the grain. Farmers, they winnowed and they threshed when they tossed the grain into the air so that the wind would blow and separate the wheat from the chaff. The Pharisees accused the disciples of doing the same when they separated with their fingers that kernel from the grain with their fingers. And they violated a fourth command when they ate that very grain in which the Pharisees believed that they harvested. They sinned by preparing food on the Sabbath day and by eating it. And so, with every mouthful, the disciples were breaking the Sabbath in four 
different ways. Notice in the second incident here, on another Sabbath, Jesus entered into the synagogue to teach, and there came across a man with a deformed hand. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen Jesus heal. It was in the house of Peter that the paralytic was brought down from the roof and whose sins were forgiven, body repaired. But that event occurred, if we go back to chapter 5, on one of the days. Here the religious leaders come to see if Jesus will do the same thing again, heal, but on the Sabbath. And in their minds, a violation of the Sabbath by working. And this situation for the scribes and the Pharisees, it was perfect. And it was perfect because this man with a withered hand, he wasn't dying. In their own laws, if life was in danger, then it was valid, actually, to do what was necessary to save a life. Such a situation overrides the Sabbath. That's what they believed. But not routine medical care. You can save a life, but not routine medical care. Unless the situation was life-threatening, healing would have to wait another day. Now in the synagogue, on that Sabbath day, no one was dying. The man had a disability. And it says in verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, I want us to take a step back from Luke. And I want us to ask the question, what did God intend for the Sabbath? What is the meaning of the Sabbath? What did the Pharisees miss? And more importantly, is there anything that we're missing? Is there anything that we're missing? What is it that I need to know regarding the Sabbath? And how does it then inform my life? And how does it inform my worship? What I want to do in the time remaining is answer those very questions by providing an overview of the Sabbath, which will then come back to how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. The Sabbath, as Jesus said, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Notice the Sabbath was made not only for the people of Israel as God had brought them out of Egypt, but it was made for man. Not for Jews, but for man. All who are made in His image. And we know that because the Sabbath is introduced to us for the very first time in the very beginning of creation. And interestingly, it is God who observes, in a sense, the first Sabbath. So leave your bookmark or Not even a finger, but a bookmark here in Luke. And let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll spend some time here. Genesis chapter 2. Following six days of creating the universe and all that is in it. Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that God rested or Sabbathed on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. This day was to be different. It was to be set apart from the previous six days. And that in at least two ways. The first is that God blessed it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. Now, in the six days of creation, God had only blessed the living creatures and man whom He had made in His image. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. God blessed the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea. Chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve. 
And with each case following his benediction, the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth was given. But God also blessed the seventh day. Which is to say that this was a day that was to be marked by fruitfulness and by fullness. The second thing here is that God made this day holy. Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This was the first time in creation that God is said to have made something holy. And so it was to be different. It was to be set apart. Not just for resting, but holy resting. To be sure, this day was marked by the cessation of God's work in creating the world and everything in it. But this seventh day served a greater purpose. Well, what was that purpose? It was worship. Worship that was fruitful. Worship that was full. A holy resting in God. And that by the very beings God had made in His likeness. This was to be their purpose. Not just on one day, but that they would live in perpetual worship. From that seventh day and on, in perpetual worship, in unending holy communion, in unbroken fellowship with their Creator and Maker who is God. And I want you to notice that that purpose is laid out for us in Genesis chapter 2. When God made Adam, what did He do? Look with me in chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. Adam was placed in the garden. But Adam was placed in the garden to worship God there in the garden. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Danny, where are you seeing that? That very action of God in putting the man in the garden is summarized again for us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. But rather than using the verb to put or to place, a different word is used. What we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, is not just that God took the man and put him in the garden, but that God took the man and rested him in the garden. The word there for put in chapter 2, verse 15 means to rest. It's the Hebrew word, naham. God's intention for Adam in being placed in that garden was to give everlasting worship to God. Notice that the heart of the meaning of rest here is not the cessation of work. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. It says that God rested him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That tells us that there is something far greater in this resting than simply not doing work. It's a holy resting. A holy communing. A holy abiding in God. But this story, this story here in Genesis, this story of perfect worship, this story of perfect rest, it takes a drastic turn into a story of rescue and redemption. And that happened when Adam and Eve failed to rest in God. That reality was shattered when they sinned against God and were by a result. Remember what happened? They were driven from out of the garden. There was no longer a Sabbath. There was no longer any rest. They were driven from out of the garden. 
That seventh day now is marred as their worship was destroyed, no longer to their Creator and Maker, but now bound in sin. And so the very purpose in which Adam and Eve were made, it was broken. And when we look at the book of Genesis, humanity was never intended to be the culmination of creation. Let me say that again. Humanity was never intended to be the culmination of creation. Rather, it was to be humanity in Sabbath day communion with God, which was to be the culmination of creation. Not just human beings, but human beings in holy resting, holy communion with God. That was the end for which they were made. And what we discover after the fall is that God in His grace had decided to restore that rest which was lost. You see, the Sabbath was made for man and God moved. He moved to redeem it. Well, how would He do it? God gave a promise. A promise of one who was to come to restore that Sabbath rest, that holy rest, to bring sinners back into communion with God. And we find that promise there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the offspring, in the seed of the woman. And so... For the first people here, they looked forward. They looked forward to the one whom God would send. The one who would come in their shape and in their form to do just that. But if we are to read on in Genesis, and you can just browse quickly through it with me. If we were to read on in Genesis, the situation, it looked pretty bleak. And it didn't look so good. It didn't look like there was going to be a Savior coming from the woman. The offspring of Adam and Eve, they show no promise. Cain murders Abel in Genesis 4. We continue on in Genesis 5. We find that no matter how many years a man could live, in the end he dies. Methuselah even, 969 years, he still died. Genesis 6, we get more bad news of increasing corruption upon the earth. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That doesn't sound like a Savior. But then it appears, it appears there in chapter 6, that there's some semblance of life. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The parents of Noah thought that they had given birth to the one who would restore that Sabbath rest. How do we know that? Because they give him the name Noah, which means... Rest. They thought they gave birth to the one who would bring that rest. That same word for Noah is used there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. He is the one who will bring us, bring us rest. And it might have appeared that way at first. As God, in a way, started, restarted the world with Noah by way of judgment in a flood. But that hope is lost. It's because in Genesis 9, Noah is found to be just like everyone else who came before him. No Savior, but a sinner. He's found in naked drunkenness. But then God through Abraham then begins to create a people. And as many as the sand on the seashore. And through Moses, he calls a nation out of Egypt. And he tells this nation, I want you to keep Sabbath. I want you to keep Sabbath. Out of all the Ten Commandments, It was the only commandment in which Israel was to remember. Remember the Sabbath. Rather than all the other commandments that begin with, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, except for one, 
which is honor your father and mother, they were to remember. They were to realize. They were to call to mind something. They were to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. They were to see that they were made for holy resting, holy communion, holy fellowship with God, and of the final rest in which God would bring. And so for six days they were to work, but on the seventh day they were to rest. And so God ended up ordering their lives around the Sabbath. The entire Jewish calendar was structured around the Sabbath. All their holidays, all their feasts, they were all based on a Sabbath schedule. For example, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, they were all holy convocations in which Israel was not to do any work. God called the Day of Atonement a Sabbath of solemn rest. Thus all their days, their weeks, their year, their calendar was to remind them over and over and over again what was to be their greatest priority, what was to be of highest importance, their worship. And this is the message that we heard from our brother Peter Kim this past Thursday. I highly encourage you, church, to listen to that sermon. But with their whole lives centered around the constant reminder of the very reason for which they were made, they profaned the Sabbath. And they worshipped other gods. This is the accusation from the prophets. And like Adam, the result for failing to rest in God was that Israel was going to be driven from out of their land. Removed from the land, just as Adam was removed from the garden. And you see, Israel's exile should have caused the people to go back to the garden when Sabbath was first broken. But sadly, even when God brought them out, out of exile, out of exile from Babylon, the problem was that they continued. They continued to attempt to find rest in idols and not in God. Rather than trusting in God and the one whom He had sent, they began making an idol out of the Sabbath day itself. And this is how far their hearts were. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 6, Israel had made a manual consisting of 24 chapters filled with extra commands regarding the Sabbath. Completely disregarding the very purpose for which it served to show them their need for Sabbath fellowship to be restored. The need to look upon the One whom God had promised to send to bring that rest. And you see there in Luke chapter 6, true Sabbath rest was right before their very eyes. And yet, like the Israelites of old, Israelites of old, they profaned him. The problem for the Pharisees is that they thought they could work themselves to restore Sabbath fellowship. Rather than looking to God's Savior, they turned to themselves, their own righteousness. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus hits it right at the heart. You need rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How will you find rest? 
Jesus takes us back to the calendar. Rest comes only after work. But not when you work. Jesus says you will find rest when you come trusting in my work. Not when you work. But when you come trusting in my work. And there Jesus says you will find rest for your souls. In my work. If this rest is absent from your soul, and I know for some of you it is, the reason is very simple. You are depending on yourself. You are looking to yourself. You are making much of yourself. You are trying to save yourself. And you will only find rest in your soul when you turn to Christ and trust in His work and not your own. And the Pharisees had failed to see this. They wanted to continue in their pride, their rebellion. They wanted to continue to profane the Sabbath. And they do that, notice, let's go back to Luke now. They do that by questioning Jesus. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus answers and He takes them back to David. And He gives an example of when David and his men became hungry while running away from Saul. And it was Ahimelech, the high priest, who gave David and his men the bread of presence from the temple. Now, here's the thing about that bread. It was only allowed to be eaten by the priest. It wasn't lawful for anyone else to eat. But God didn't disapprove of their eating. It's because if they didn't eat, David and his men, they would have starved. And thus they would have been destroyed. Now Jesus could have said to the Pharisees, hey, there's nothing in the law that prevents us from eating in the wheat field. But he gives this example to show them the purpose of the Sabbath. To give life. To restore life. As that bread did to David and his men. To give and restore life and not to destroy. They had failed to see the very reason for the Sabbath and what the Sabbath pointed to. God's promise to give His people rest. To bring them into communion with Him. They were fixated on their man-made rules. That rather than looking at what the Sabbath was made for, they were so fixated on their rules. For man. That Sabbath was made for man. For sinners. That's what they forgot. To bring them back into fellowship with their Creator. Well, who is going to do this? Who is going to do that? Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Everything that the entirety of biblical history has been talking about, about the Sabbath, it's fulfilled in me. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus there wasn't just saying, because I'm God, I get to do whatever I want to do. That's not what he was saying. Or rather, he was saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That I'm the true Sabbath rest for sinners. And this was his very message in the synagogue. As the scribes and the Pharisees watched to see what Jesus would do. Why did Jesus cleanse the leper? Why did He heal Peter's mother-in-law? Why did He cast out the unclean spirit? Why did He raise the paralytic to reveal that He had come to heal 
our sicknesses and to bear our diseases. And He does the same with a man with a withered hand. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, He said to him, stretch out your hand. And He does so. And His hand was restored. You see, the Sabbath was meant to point us to our need to be restored. This is the reason for which Jesus came. Saving sinners. Restoring us back to Sabbath rest with God. And that He did by His life and by His death upon the cross. But we know that though Jesus died, He rose again from the dead. And you remember when Jesus died. You'll remember that when Jesus died, those who prepared His body, they moved rather quickly. They moved rather quickly as they could to prepare the body and to bury the body before the Sabbath. And when Jesus rose, He did so not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, right? Remember the Gospel accounts? Jesus rose on the day after the Sabbath. Throughout all the Gospel accounts, we're specifically told that it was on the first day of the week in which the women found the tomb empty, that it was on the first day of the week in which Jesus appeared to His disciples. And eventually, it's on the first day of the week in which the disciples began to meet. That the corporate worship of the church began following the resurrection not on Saturday, the seventh day, but on Sunday, the first day. On the day in which the Lord was raised. Well, why? Why do we gather on Sunday to be together and to worship Christ? You see, I believe that it's not that we're just not to meet on any day. But I believe that we are to meet on Sunday. And that to worship Christ corporately. The answer is not just because it was the pattern set out from the early church. You see, at the resurrection, God wants to tell us something. He wants to shift that day of rest from the seventh day to the first. And it's to tell us something about a rest. That it's been achieved that it's been accomplished, that it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Back in the garden as Adam and Eve worshipped and rested on that seventh day, what was the expectation? That their eternal worship would continue through that seventh day and on to the eighth day and the ninth day and the tenth day and every day after that. That that resting would be forever through all the days. But that rest was stopped short on the seventh day, wasn't it? Until Christ came and died and rose again on the first day to restore back to sinners that holy rest. To say that He has come to provide true and abiding eternal rest and that He has won it by His life and death and resurrection. We meet on Sundays, the first day, to say that God's rest has been restored by Christ. 
And that seventh day of rest continues on to the eighth day, the first day. That our rest is forever. That's why we meet on Sunday and not on Wednesday. We do have a Thursday midweek worship. You see, when we gather on Sundays to rest and to worship, we look back to the work in which Christ has accomplished on our behalf to give us this rest. But not only do we look back, but we also look forward for our rest. It continues. It continues. We look forward to the consummation of our salvation. We look ahead to the heavenly rest for which awaits us. This is monumental to our understanding of our worship. This is what our Sundays are meant to show us. And this is what our Sundays point to. And we call it the Lord's Day. Why? For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. And so everything we do on this day, from the sermon, to our prayers, to our singing, to our communion, to the baptism we saw in the last several weeks, it all points to Christ. Only in Him do we have this rest. And on this day, we, we ought to encourage one another and point one another towards the sufficiency of Christ and of the beauty of our Savior, our Savior who has delivered us from our sins. And you see, anything less profanes the Sabbath. Anything less minimizes the worship and the fellowship we have in Him. Anything less robs us of our day of spiritual refreshment and the joy in which God intends us to have through faith in Christ. Anything less. You see, the Sabbath means more to us than we think. Church, as application, doesn't this change the way that we view our Sundays? As we approach our corporate gathering, doesn't it change our preparation for it? Our anticipation and looking forward to it? Any meditation to prepare for it? How intentional are we as we meet? Before we meet. After we meet. Our Sundays remind us that our rest has been restored. Broken in the book of Genesis. Restored in Christ. Not because of our work. But because of Christ's work. And here's something that we can do as Christians when we come to church on Sundays. We can come to church thinking, i got to do more work. i got to do more work. i got to busy myself with this and i got to busy myself with that. I gotta serve here and I gotta serve there. Not to say that's wrong. But if we think that we come to church to keep working, it is to neglect the true meaning of our Sabbath rest. We come to worship. We come to know that we have been brought back to restored fellowship, that we've been, in a ways, Brought back to the garden to be with our Creator. To be with our Creator. You know, it could be that you're here on this Sunday, a day that proclaims that Christ has restored that eternal and abiding rest. And it could be 
that you today, that you are utterly restless. Can I ask you, is that where you are today? That you've come today on this Sunday, a day that proclaims Christ's rest. But instead, you're utterly restless. Meaning that you're here apart from true and abiding fellowship with God. Augustine, the early church father, he said this, For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find its rest in thee. Is that where you are? Restless? Jesus said, come. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, those who are restless. Come and trust in His work. Come and trust in His work. Not your own work. Trust in His work, in His life, death, and resurrection. His work that you may find true rest. That you may stop working. That you might find true rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Creator God, our Redeemer, You deserve our undivided adoration and praise. For You have made us for Yourself. We thank You for showing us that which You have always required from us, our worship. We ask that You would forgive us for taking that command too lightly, for tailoring our lives around that which is inconsequential in light of our Creator and Maker, the Holy and Living God. We have neglected worship, worship that takes place in our hearts and the rest that takes place in our soul. Forgive us in failing to consider the spiritual gravity the redemptive purpose, the eternal reminder that takes place on this day that Your Son, whom You sent on our behalf, is Lord of the Sabbath. We declare, like Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they find its rest in Thee. May we continue to come to Jesus to find rest for our souls. In the name of Jesus Christ, in whose work we trust, for our eternal rest we pray. Amen.